We're blessed in this church to have a number of people capable of, of teaching and showing us insights from God's Word that are applicable for our life. While I hog the pulpit most of the time and Camper has uh, his opportunities been occasionally, uh, we have seven teaching elders that are part of this congregation. And this morning we have the opportunity to hear from Ken Bush. A number of you know Ken. Uh, he's been, he and Kathy have been part of the congregation for a while. And I've enjoyed the opportunity that we've had to get together. Ken's been a great encouragement, and uh, I've appreciated the, the developing friendship that we have had. Ken is a colonel in the, in the United States Army. He is the senior chaplain at Fort Eustis, meaning he mentors and disciples all the other chaplains of all denominations that are over there. And then best of all is that uh, Ken is retiring or retiring from the Army later this year. He and Kathy are staying in the area and will be coming along and and working with us here, and so I'm delighted that uh, we can put Ken to work um, and to, to share with us. And so, Ken, uh, if you come and bring us the word this morning. Always glad to uh, be here and get the opportunity to share God's word with you. It's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, all of us know that. Most of us have a little bit of extra time off because of it. A time we set aside to remember the sacrifices of our servicemen and women who since our nation's founding have laid down their lives to preserve and sustain the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. It's uh, particularly significant for me, maybe for some of you. I have a favorite cousin who uh, was killed in Vietnam. I think about him on this weekend. I think about soldiers and their family members, many of whom have lost their lives since the uh, global war on terror. Remembrance is a significant part of what it means to be human. God has designed us that way. It's part of what it means to be created in his image. It's particularly important for us as uh, we think about what it means to confess the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us to remembrance every Sunday as we worship him. That's what we do when we gather here. Uh, we gather it and we sing praise to him as we start out to remember his greatness. And then we remember... Because of his greatness, we remember who we are before him. We come and we confess our sins and we ask for his forgiveness. We hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from his word and uh, from those who, who share from this pulpit. And then God sends us forth in restoration to restore the kingdom that he has uh, called us to be a part of. Uh, the sermon series that Dennis and Camper have been preaching for the last several weeks has to do with the gospel B.C., and although this is not a formally a part of that, uh, that series, I think the message fits along with that theme. So this morning, I want us to consider from Jeremiah uh, the call to remember that we are a covenant people and to start to think about what that means. I say start because it's only the beginning of a process of what it means to live out the gospel. Hear God's word from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, uh, which you can open up your pew Bibles, 658, to find that passage if you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins 
no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word read this morning, we pray that the words of the prophet Jeremiah would penetrate our hearts, the power of your spirit, so that we may be more like your son Jesus, having encountered your word when we leave than when we came. For we ask it in his name. Amen. In today's world, we define a host of relationships through the use of contracts. These contracts help to spell out what each party is obligated to do and what will happen if there's a failure on one part of that uh, agreement, one party or the other, to abide by that agreement. In today's reading from Jeremiah, we uh, come across an idea that shows up frequently in the Scriptures, the idea of a covenant. Now, covenants in the ancient world were similar to contracts, but were much more than the legal documents that we're familiar with today. Um, a covenant was a solemn agreement between two parties that would bind them to each other in a permanently defined relationship with specific promises and claims and obligations on both sides. The biblical covenants are kind of unique to this concept of covenant because they are God-initiated. Uh, one writer describes them as an oath um, solemnly uh, bound together in blood because in the, in the covenants of, of God, it has to do with the shedding of the blood of Christ. We'll see in a few minutes. But um, after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, God entered into a covenant of grace with men and women. And at its core, it, it can be summed up by the promise, which we see in, the, in this passage of Jeremiah, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This covenant, which is the most comprehensive term to describe this one plan of redemption that runs through the Bible, was administered through a series of subordinate covenants in the Old Testament that we collectively call the Old Covenant. That's when we talk about the Old Covenant. We actually mean several covenants, including a covenant made with Abraham, Noah, Moses, and David. But we, we collectively think of those as the Old Covenant. Now, under this arrangement, particularly after the making of the covenant with Moses, which had to do with the giving of the law, God required Israel to keep that law in order to receive the blessings of being his people. Unfortunately, as we've seen frequently in Dennis's and Kemper's sermons over the last couple of weeks, God's people were unable to keep their end of the bargain, their end of the agreement. The same thing is true here. Facing a time of judgment during Jeremiah's time for their inability to keep their part of the covenant for many generations, God continued to demonstrate his mercy to them by putting out to them their need for a new and a better covenant. This is the only place in all the Old Testament where the specific term new covenant is, in fact, used. Jerusalem is about to fall to Babylon. And her people are about to be sent into exile. The earthly Davidic kingdom is coming to an end, and the temple is about to be destroyed. The temple that has been the center of worship for God's people now for centuries is going to be destroyed. Yet in the midst of this seemingly hopeless situation, God gives a promise for the future. A divinely inspired glimpse, if you will, ahead. Jeremiah looks forward to the fulfillment of God's gracious promises in the establishment of a new covenant. As we examine Jeremiah's teaching about this covenant, we see that the new covenant centers on God's initiative. The new covenant contains gracious provisions, gracious promises, and the new covenant culminates in Christ. First, let's just take a look at the new covenant centers on God's initiative. The old covenant between God and the nation of Israel was based on a call for them to be different and thereby be a light to the nations around them. 
Under the law given at Mount Sinai, every detail of life was prescribed, in part to help them to be separate, to be different than the people around them. God would be their God if they would act like his people, if they would keep their part of the covenant. But even before Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after the first giving of the law, the people of Israel had already turned their backs on God and turned to an idol. You know that story. God sends Moses up to the mountain to receive their law on tablets. He's up there just a little bit too long for, the, for most of the people, and they decide that, well, you know, he's not coming back. And so what are we going to do? So they turn to idols. I mean, they haven't even really physically gotten the law yet, and they've already turned their back on what God has written in it. And the much, much of the Old Testament is, in fact, a record of how Israel violated the covenant that God established with them over and over again. Time and again, he was faithful, as he said in the book of Jeremiah. But they were faithless. Many of Israel's religious leaders knew there was something wrong in their relationship with God. They tried to repair that broken relationship, but however, unable to internally mend hearts that have a tendency to stray from God and from His Word, they established man-made laws to put a hedge around those given by God. So you can see what they're doing here. They said, well, you know, we know that these people are really tough to deal with, and you know, they've already turned to idols multiple times, so let's make laws to keep God's people from even getting close to violating the laws. It was pretty much the structure that was in existence in Jesus' day, which is why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they kept all these little laws in order to keep people from breaking the big laws, and they missed the point. However, our inability to keep God's law is not something mere humans can fix. It's just not something the Israelites could do. It's not something that we can do. Yet there's something inside of us that causes us to attempt to save ourselves rather than be dependent on God. Think about your own life. I know in my life that's true. You know, if I can do it myself or I can figure out a way to do it myself and God isn't in the picture, you know, I'm nine times out of ten, that's the way it will happen. You know, a lot of times we're only really concerned about God when things are really tough and we can't do it on our own and then we decide, well, maybe it's time to turn to him. But we're just like the Israelites that way. I, I used to think when reading the Old Testament, you know, I never would be like that if I'd lived then, but, you know, I'm almost certainly sure I would have been in that 99% of those folks that did the same thing. But such thinking that we can somehow do it ourselves ultimately leads to the same point of hopelessness and judgment that faced Israel here. Jeremiah tells us that the new covenant is available to us not because of something we have done or can do, but because God chose to take the initiative and reach out to establish a new relationship with us. There's an unusual event that takes place in the context of God's making a covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant chapters 15 and 16 and 17 of Genesis probably the central core of the, of the promises that God makes to his people. Um, and when God makes that covenant with Abraham, he does a, something that's kind of interesting. It kind of foreshadows the extent of God's initiative in the new covenant. In this story, Abraham is told to take several animals and cut them in half, laying the pieces opposite of each other. Now, that may seem to be a little strange to us, but, you know, we, we take out a piece of paper and a pen and a contract. You know, we write out a contract and agreement. Both parties sign it, witness it by somebody, and that kind of makes a contract for us. But in the Old Testament, there were different ways in which they could make a covenant. Uh, pretty strange for most of our thinking in our culture. You know, they could take off one of their shoes and uh, hand it to the person, and somehow that was a way of making it a binding agreement. Um, and this way, uh, they actually cut these animals and lie the pieces, lay the pieces opposite each other, long and make an aisle, sort of like what we have here in the center part of this church. Now, as the sun went down on Abraham, God reaffirms several promises that he makes unilaterally to him, and he also uh, gives him a vision of, of a smoking pot and a flaming torch that passes between these pieces. 
Now, what's happening here? Kind of unusual. Well, when the people laid out these pieces and, and made this covenant, they, were basically, they would basically take an oath to each other and walk through the pieces that were laying opposite each other. Uh, and, and they would make those agreements or promises to each other while they were doing that. And so in essence, they were basically saying, may I be cut in half like these animals if I fail to fulfill my part of the promise. Now notice that Abraham never walks through the pieces. He's in a trance. He's in a, he's in a dreamlike state here. Uh, he never gets up and walks through and makes any promises at all in regard to the covenant. God himself walks through the form, in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, and he takes upon himself the obligations and penalties of both sides of the covenant. And that's what God did for us in Christ. The second Adam took upon himself the judgment due to us and purchased our redemption. That promise comes to us not through any merit on our part, but simply by the grace of God. Abraham didn't have to walk through, nor any of his representatives. God walks through on both hands because he knows. He knows that people of Israel, us, the people of God, are never going to be able to keep any of the promises that God requires from us. Jeremiah then moves on after he talks about God's initiative in the covenant, and he talks about these gracious provisions or promises that God will make as a part of this new covenant. He points out at least three provisions in the new covenant that show the magnitude of God's grace. First, there's a provision of permanence. Under the old covenant, the law of God was written on tablets of stone and placed in the Holy of Holies. That's the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies to remind the people of Israel of the law of God. And once in a while, people of God would forget God's law and, and then a prophet would discover it and then read the law and people would all of a sudden realize how far short they had fallen of God's word and, and many times there would be renewal and revival as a result. But that's generally how the law was thought of. It was thought of in terms of what was written there. As we have seen, though, Israel broke that covenant many times with tragic consequences. However, under the new covenant, God says he will bring about the necessary change in people's hearts to make them capable of obedience to his word. Jeremiah reports that God will write his law in their hearts, in the hearts of God's people. People will have a changed nature. You know, I know that Camper has been working his way through about 10 weeks now, and he's got a couple more weeks to go on the dynamics of biblical change, which is all about how God changes the heart of people through his gospel. So instead of externally attempting to keep the law in their own power, God's people will both know and do what he desires. God also promises that when the covenant is fulfilled, people would no longer need intermediaries to instruct them to be loyal to God rather than worshiping idols because they will do it from the heart. Second, there is a gracious provision of fellowship here. From the least to the greatest, both young and old, they will know God. The word know describes an intimate personal knowledge between two persons who are wholly committed to each other, mind, emotion, and will. As a result of this relationship, God promises that he will be their God and that those receiving this gracious promise will be his people and they will act accordingly. God's people will become aware in a very personal way that they belong to God and that they commune directly with him. It's one of the benefits that we have being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We know that we have a personal relationship with him. If we come to, the, to accept what's written in the scriptures about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. Third, there's a provision of full redemption. The sin that has been written on the hearts of God's people and had dominated their behavior would be wiped clean forever. The new covenant would be based on a gracious act of forgiveness, the full satisfaction of sin. God had been like a husband to them, but God's people had been like an unfaithful wife to him. Yet in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their idolatry, God promises to forgive them and to remember their sins no more. While Jeremiah doesn't specifically mention the Messiah in this text, we know that, from the, concerning the whole counsel of God's word, that his, this promise of forgiveness is fully fulfilled only in the person and work of Christ. It's, the people of Israel were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah who would deliver them. Jeremiah here is talking about the new covenant that that Messiah would institute. In fact, the scriptures teach us that the new covenant culminates in Christ. Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant and its foreshadowing of what God would do through Christ are so compelling that this section has often been called the gospel in the Old Testament. Surely we know from the sermons that have been preached that the gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. Somehow I think we get the idea that you know, there's the Old Testament and there's no gospel there and then there's the New Testament all of a sudden the gospel shows up. But it's there. It's been there from the beginning because God created it from the beginning to be so. So how does God, though, write a new covenant in our hearts? How does he do that? Well, I guess I should just tell you to go see last, uh, listen to the ham, uh, camper's last two study school classes, but uh, he probably already finished uh, eight of those, and so ten of those. He's got two more to do, but we'll, we'll summarize it here a little bit briefly. God, God sent his son to dwell among us. We know that. And as we remember from our Easter celebration a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus went to the cross, taking upon himself the punishment for sin that was rightfully ours. Because of the atonement that he made by his death and the vindication of his sacrifice by his resurrection, we can enter into a new relationship with God because God sent his spirit to live within us. That's something that the Old Testament saints didn't have either. The Holy Spirit would come for a season of blessing and uh, empowering for ministry, but in the, new, in the new covenant, the spirit of God comes and dwells in his people. These realities we, look, we can look back to because we have... Uh, 2020 hindsight, with gratefulness. The Old Testament saints could only look forward to that with expectation in their hearts. Jesus the Messiah has opened a new and better way, fulfilling all the demands of the Old Covenant. All those laws which God's people could not in any way keep, God has made a better covenant. And the writer of the Hebrews, who quotes the words of Jeremiah extensively in chapter 8 of his book, tells us that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better because it is enacted on better promises. Take a look at that chapter 8 of Hebrews um, this afternoon sometime and think about the Jeremiah 31, 31, 34, which is quoted there in the context of that passage. And these better promises guarantee that this new covenant cannot be broken based on our ability or inability to keep God's word, which is a good thing. But the new covenant promises are made certain through the grace mediated by Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. I'm glad that my relationship with the Lord isn't based on my ability or inability. But I know my heart, and I know that I'm not able in any way to stand before God and claim that I can even partially fulfill any of the requirements that he's placed on me 
It's not a surprise that we're sinners in thought, word, and deed. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. We break God's law every day. We don't always recognize we break God's law, but I guarantee you we do. I know I do. Quite often our sinful hearts and minds compel our hands and mouths to outwardly carry out the deception that lies in our hearts. And that's where it starts. It starts in our hearts. It's our hearts that desperately need change. What is surprising isn't that we're sinners. What's surprising is that we think, as the Israelites did, that we somehow have the ability to fix all of this on our own. It was such thinking that led to the collapse of the Old Covenant. Yet in spite of Israel's lack of faithfulness to their part of the agreement, God did not break his covenant promises to his people. He did not break his covenant promises to us. We are inheritors of those promises through Christ. Instead, he fulfilled them, as Jeremiah prophesied in this text, in the gracious provision of the new covenant in Christ. It is significant that Jesus referred to Jeremiah's revelation of the new covenant on the night of his last Passover, on the Last Supper, which we will observe here next Sunday after his covenant. Because like those first disciples, every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the newness, the comprehensiveness, the depth of God's grace that's revealed in the new covenant. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. For those that were in early service this morning, we repeated those words. God gives us a new covenant, which is an unfailing covenant. It will never wear out. It never will expire because it's all based on full and free forgiveness, not on our ability or inability, but on the ability of God. While the new covenant was sealed through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, it remains to be fully consummated in each believer. If you're here this morning and you've never yielded to Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God wants to begin the process of writing his covenant in your heart through Christ. No amount of religious ritual, no amount of religious observance, will deliver you from the penalty and power of sin. We cannot do it on our own. We have to have hearts transformed from the inside out. If you've never experienced that, then I'd, I encourage you to talk to one of the elders or Camper or, or Dennis about it. But if you're a believer in Christ here this morning, God wants to continue the process he began in your heart when the promises of the new covenant became yours in the gospel. We call that process sanctification. He wants to continue to do what he started in your heart heart. We should take some time to observe Memorial Day. We should do that. It's a national holiday. It's right for us to remember the sacrifices of other people on our behalf as a part of God's common grace and goodness to us. But more importantly, we should take time to remember the greatest sacrifice ever made. The sacrifice of God's only son to deliver us from the penalty and power of sin then shaped by our remembrance and rehearsal of the gospel and worship, which we do today. And every Sunday we gather, we do that. Shaped by that remembrance, and we should go out and rehearse its reality in our lives every moment of the day. Counselor and author Elise Fitzpatrick has written several books, and um, she describes uh, out of, in one of those, this practical, this, she describes this process in practical terms. She says, in order to grow in Christ-likeness, we've got to intentionally apply the gospel to everything we are and everything we long to do. We're not to sever our obedience from Christ's perfect sinlessness nor disconnect our mortal life from his resurrect resurrected life. We've got to understand ourselves in light of our new identity, seeing ourselves as we truly are, sinful and flawed, loved, and welcome. 
only these gospel realities have enough power to engender faith, kill idolatry, produce character change, and motivate faithful obedience. If you're like me, and I'm going to assume that most of you are, it's never, never very much about knowing more about things in the Scripture. Most of us have a glut of knowledge when it comes to scriptural things, certainly when you compare it to other parts of the world, like our friends who are translators of the Bible and other places where they don't even have God's Word in their own language. Certainly, we probably have a... We can turn on the radio, turn on TV, pick up a book. We've been bombarded by knowledge about the Gospel. It's not usually a question about knowledge. It's more a question of how we apply that to ourselves every day in our hearts. That's my problem. You know, how do I really understand and remember that identity that, uh, uh, that I have in Christ? Do I really, when you know, I'm tempted to, to raise my voice, to do something which um, I probably ought not to do, do I really stop to think, you know, that's not who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ? Unfortunately, um, not sometimes I don't. But that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to remember like we set aside time to remember those who have sacrificed for, the, for us, we really should and set aside time all the time, every day, preach the gospel to ourselves every day to remember the sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ made for us. And then, more importantly, what, that, what difference does that make in the way I think, in the way I treat the people around me, and how I act? We are children of the covenant. Remember and let the remembrance of that new identity in the gospel of Christ shape the commitments of our minds and the actions that flow from our hearts as we go from here, restored, renewed, and to spread the kingdom of God to the farthest corners of where he calls us to go. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you from the beginning even after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you, have, you had already set us in motion your plan of redemption to redeem a people to yourself. And in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of our unfaithfulness, Lord, you've always remained faithful to the promises of your covenant to us. We thank you for that. And we thank you that you've given us a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, Lord, that that identity would shape us every day, in every hour, in every minute. It would shape the way we think, and it would shape the way our hearts behave. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of response.